Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. Last week we explored the changing face of the Catholic faith in Ireland. On the programme tonight we turn our gaze to Islam, the second biggest religion globally with an estimated 1.8 billion followers worldwide. But what do those outside the faith know of its origins and beliefs? I'm joined this evening from Glasgow by Mona Siddiqui OBE, Professor of Islamic and Interreligious Studies at the University of Edinburgh. In 2011, she became the first person to hold a chair in Islamic and Interreligious Studies at the University of Edinburgh's School of Divinity. Also with us this evening is a familiar voice to our programme, Sheikh Dr. Umar Al-Qadri, a leading Irish Muslim religious and social thinker and commentator. A qualified theologian and jurist, he works for Cohesion, Integration and a Fairer Society as chairperson of the Irish Muslim Peace and Integration Council and chief imam at the Islamic Centre of Ireland. And joining us from Manchester this evening is solicitor and author Tasif Khan, author of The Muslim Problem, Why We're Wrong About Islam and Why It Matters, published earlier this year. You're all very welcome to our programme. Can I ask the three of you to begin with, uh, for those who are listening who mightn't fully understand the faith we're going to be talking about this evening, Professor Siddiqui, can I begin with you? What does following the faith of Islam mean to you? Well, I suppose at the centre of faith, my faith is a belief personally, ritually, socially, a belief in God. And that's a personal relationship as well as a communal relationship, which I share with my family and uh, which I carry with me wherever I go. It doesn't always have to be manifest in any kind of, you know, overt way, but it's it makes me who I am. And I suppose to some extent it informs so much of what I do and how I think. Can the definition of being a Muslim override any other social definitions that might be used to describe people? Is often used to describe you before your nationality or your gender? I think it's quite difficult to disentangle those things. When somebody sees me, they'll probably see various things all at once. And nobody will necessarily know I'm a Muslim unless I tell them. So it really depends on how you want your faith to be seen, how you want to be seen as a member of that faith as well. Um, And I do think that today's world, we speak of faith in very political terms. Uh, Faith has been so politicised across cultures, whereas for many people, um, and I would include myself in that, faith is largely a very personal dimension of my life. I haven't ever lived without faith And I don't want to live without faith. I'm quite happy to admit that. But I also think that we need to be open to receiving all kinds of other influences that makes us better human beings. Sheikh Al-Qadri, can I bring you into this with the same question, which is what your faith means to you on a a day-by-day basis? Um, First of all, for having me in the programme today. Um, For me, what it means to be a Muslim is uh, to submit to God and uh, submission to the will of God. And I find, uh, as a Muslim, uh, the will of God into the Qur'an, into the scripture that was uh, revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, and into his authentic uh, hadith. Um, I do want to uh, highlight that, of course, uh, the words of God and the word of God and the word of the Prophet Muhammad, both can be interpreted in many ways, different ways. Um, And when... I, as a Muslim, uh, you know, theologian who has studied Islam for about 20 to 25 years by now, I understand that 
it's really all about uh, being a good human being. It's about, of course, the relationship with God. It's a personal relationship. It's a relationship that is an, a, a very individual relationship. But also, as a Muslim, it means to be ha to have a relationship with God, which is a collective relationship as as an ummah, as a nation. But the essence of this faith that I follow is to live your life in a way that becomes to become useful for others you are beneficial for others and there is a hadith of the prophet muhammad which kind of sums this up you know he was asked uh, mal muslim who is a muslim and he responded by saying al muslimu man salim an nasa min lisanihi wa yadihi a muslim is the one who is a source of uh, peace uh, and who doesn't harm others from uh, by any means and that is what it means to be a muslim tasif khan for you uh, growing up uh, as a muslim what does it mean to you um, I think that question has definitely changed over the years. Um, being Muslim when I was younger was something that I did rather than something that I felt because it, it came from a place of identity, a place of my family and my parents needing to know that we had a sense of self. Um, so it became something initially that was very rigid. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I think that my relationship with Islam has changed. I see it as, as something that... I see that Islam as, as like a language um, to express my faith um, or my relationship with God, my connection to the world. It's kind of the lens that I use to look at the world and, and my position in it and to try and understand the things around me. Um, sometimes my faith is very important. Sometimes it's not. It's peripheral, but it's always there in the background. Um, and I think that for me, as Professor Siddiqui says, Islam and my relationship with Islam has a political dimension. That's not something that is necessarily my own choice. It's simply a consequence of having grown up in Britain um, at, the, at a particular time, post 9-11. I think that there is no way for uh, many of us growing up at that time to not relate to Islam in a political way, um, given the kind of microscope that Islam has been placed under over the last 20 years. The title of your book, The Muslim Problem, is why we're wrong about Islam and why it matters. Who's the we? Uh, so many of us, Muslims and non-Muslims, I think that um, whilst faith is a personal, individualistic thing, when we think of Islam, we think of it in very rigid, um, kind of mono terms. We think of it as, as a kind of uh, monolith. And, and when we think of the monolith, we think of it as oppressive, as rigid, as uh, violent, as, you know, we apply all of these kind of stereotypes to it. And I think that we do that both within certain Muslim communities, but also significantly outside of it. And so my goal with writing The Muslim Problem was to address the way that we often perceive uh, Islam within various communities. Because I think that even if you grow up within the community, uh, the Muslim community itself, you grow up with many ideas of what Islam is that might not necessarily chime with your own idea of what you would like Islam to, to be and embody to you. I read you what, what, 14 at the time of the 9-11 attacks in the United States. That must have impacted you and your interpretation of the faith you belong to. Absolutely. Um, I think that from the age of 14 and maybe even earlier, I have found myself on the back foot when it comes to understanding uh, Islam. It's never necessarily been on my own terms. Uh, it's never necessarily been a positive relationship. It's one that has always been defined by a defensiveness and needing to react and respond and understand the 
narrative that has played out in the West over the last 20 years. And so, you know, I think about the day after 9-11, being 14 years old, going into school the next day and having this conversation about what had happened and being asked by my teacher to somehow explain it. Um, and even though I don't necessarily think that I was picked on to do that because I was uh, Muslim or because I was brown, I definitely felt a pressure there beneath all of it that I was somehow expected to answer for many things that I didn't even understand. Professor Siddiqui, when you hear, and I'm sure you found yourself in a situation of having to defend your faith when people are confused uh, about its role when it comes to peace, but peace is everywhere. Uh, it's it's even in the, the day-to-day salutations that people give to each other. Yes, I think uh, you're, you're right. But I think that it's very easy to um, collapse everything into Islam is peace when the outside world says and looks at Muslims and thinks, well, where is the peace? Uh, And the reason for that is because for decades, Tosif is a lot younger than I am, but for decades, nobody really in the West was really that bothered about what Muslim communities were up to, how they lived, um, whether they were segregated, what they were up to, what their values were. And it wasn't until really the onset of violence, whether it was 9-11 or um, the 7-7 bombings, and then since then, various uh, terrorist attacks, that Muslims and what they represent and their visibility went from being awkward to a problem. And so therefore, the only way to talk about Islam was either in defence or in critique. Um, And personally speaking, though, both as an academic and and as a person, I've always stayed away from trying to defend Islam or being defensive about Islam because I understand completely that in the West people um, don't really know how to talk about the visibility of the the strangeness or the exoticism of certain religions because we don't really talk about religion much in the West, not in public life. Um, So therefore... It's very hard to, to say to people, oh, but this is the real Islam, when actually, I don't actually believe that that is not only this, that not the truth, because actually for a lot of people, their interpretation of Islam can be violent. Their interpretation of Islam can be uh, bipolar in the sense that there is a us and them. And so for me, the important question is, and the challenge is, how do you talk amongst Muslims themselves? And how do you talk within different groups? Sheikh Al-Qadri, can you expand on this a little bit for us? Because I suppose what we've just heard is that the discussion of religion has been fairly thin on the ground and and there's nothing worse than receiving criticism from from somebody who doesn't know anything about what they're talking about. But if the faith itself and and if the teachings of the Quran, are they applicable now as they might have been in, what, 645 AD? Um, I'll start with Professor Siddiqui mentioning that uh, for some people, Islam may be, uh, you know, a religion of violence and that would promote um, a a narrative of us versus them. I agree with that. And this is very much why in 2015, I established the Irish Muslim Peace and Integration Council uh, with the purpose of... um, of, of, you know, highlighting within the Muslim community the need of, um, you know, discovering the true heritage of pluralism, tolerance and mutual respect that is found in the Quran and is found in the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, so for the major- for the most Muslims, Islam is, you know, a religion that inspires them to do good. But absolutely, uh, there are people, unfortunately, for whom Islam means uh, that we must be in conflict uh, with the other. Um, And, I mean, this is a challenge that we within the community are facing. But having said that, I mean, every 
tradition, every faith or every community will have people that will um, somehow believe in a world where uh, there must be conflict, a world where they are right and everybody else is wrong, or there must be an us versus them narrative. And But the vast majority of every community is peaceful and they're all human beings that have challenges like everybody else. And that is why I think it is important to uh, open up the doors of the community and reach out to the larger community. And this is what we have done here in uh, in Ireland. Is there a central source of teaching in Islam? Now, we don't have, um, unlike Catholicism, you know, a pope, or we don't have any such uh, Sheikh al-Islam, uh, a position where uh, there is one person that is followed. We do have within the Sunni Muslim world, for example, different institutions that are that are followed by many Muslims, uh, but not all Muslims. So we wouldn't have that hierarchical structure. Uh, so it would be very difficult to say that. And therefore also difficult to to issue a general guidance to people who are, for example, using their faith as a form of terrorism. Absolutely right. And this is why uh, we have many of these uh, fatawas, uh, verdicts, uh, where Muslim scholars have come together to uh, to, to uh, combat and to address uh, that these violent uh, acts are not in accordance with Quran. We have had these Muslim scholars coming in Morocco. The Marrakesh Declaration is a very good example of that. Um, scholars of Al-Azhar have come together, issued many fatawas in Abu Dhabi. And, and even here in UK, many Muslim scholars have done so. But again, there is not such, uh, there is no such single authority, single organization uh, that is followed by all Muslims. Sorry, I just wanted to add, though, I think this, th- there's a kind of misconception that if you have a central authority, that that central authority can issue guidance that, that all those who follow that central authority will necessarily follow it. And we know even from, let's just take the Catholic faith itself, which does have a central hierarchy, a magisterium, a pope, that whatever is, is said in the, in the name of the pope, that doesn't necessarily mean that all Catholics follow it. Um, and that whatever guidance is given from central authorities, people do have moral agency and often choose their own paths. So I think that too often, this is a very common question, that if you had a central authority that people would follow it, people often, whatever faith they have, choose to follow and observe what makes sense in their lives. And, ha- and they do their own negotiations and their own struggles with their faith. Um, I do think it's a little bit of a misnomer to think that a central authority can actually give guidance to everyone who follows that faith. And even within uh, the presence of a central authority, then there is very often a a, a split or a difference. Uh, And then there's sometimes the concept of reformation. Is there a concept of reformation in Islam? No, I, I think, and that's another very common comparison that people make, as if somehow the reformation was this peaceful um, readjustment of a faith. The Reformation was bloody. It basically toppled the Catholic Church. It's created a schism. And um, what we're really talking about is not the Reformation. When people in the West say Islam needs a Reformation, what they're really talking about is Islam needs the period of enlightenment. And it's that period of enlightenment when we started talking about individual freedom of uh, individual liberties, freedom of conscience, and moral agency. Those individual traits were emphasised. Um, that has formed the bedrock of Western liberal democracies. And so often I say that it's really, today when we talk about religious faith, what we're really talking about is not doctrine and ritual. What we're really talking about, what values do you hold dear? What values do you hold in your faith? What values do you bring to public life? 
and what kind of values do you live your life by? And it's really not the clash of civilizations, but this sense that values in certain religions are not in chime with Western Enlightenment values. Tasif, when you hear the idea that uh, you know people, for example, should be bringing about a change, should be influencing the terrorists or the people who use their faith as an explanation for their terrorism, that it should be up to the people like you to dissuade them, to inform them. What do you feel about that? Mm. I think it's an interesting question. I think that what Professor Siddiqui says is right and important that in, when it comes to Islam and Muslim communities, we are always spoken of in terms of, of like Christian, in Christian history, Christian language on Christian terms rather than our own terms. So trying to understand, for example, the idea of a reformation is interesting when I, you know, I, I totally believe that Islam has its, in its history, in its past, the tools for, um, for a better present and a better future. Um, I think it's just a case of remembering and opening. Um, similarly, thinking about, um, you know, thinking about your question, I think that whilst my book is interested in opening up the kind of diversity of ideas and the diversity of interpretations that can exist within Islam, I don't personally feel that it's my responsibility or the responsibility of other Muslims to tackle extremist narratives, because I think that whilst they serve a purpose to a certain extent, I don't think that they, I think that they have limited effect. I think that we're better off, for example, addressing the reasons why somebody might be drawn to um, a particularly extremist or violent narrative. Um, Because I think that there is this uh, tendency to talk of Muslims only through the lens of Islam and to talk of our motivations or our behaviour only through the lens of Islam as, as a motivating factor. So if we think about extremism, why are we not talking more about the way that people are drawn to extremist narratives, not because of the narratives themselves, not because of Islam itself, but for example foreign policy or discrimination or Islamophobia or structural inequality. I think that uh, if we are really um, intentional about addressing extremism, we have to look at the factors that influence and, and direct people towards those narratives and, th- and that make them attractive. I'm curious, having uh, heard an answer from Sheikh Al-Qadri, you used the word fatwa, and I, I understand the correct intention of it, but some people listening may not, because it immediately brings to mind Salman Rushdie or, or, or uh, Charlie Hebdo. Um, how do you, as a, uh, as a group, do you change the misinformation that's out there? Tasif. Mm, I think that's, that's an incredibly complex question, because I think that how misinformation persists is so deeply embedded within Western societies and it's so, it's so structural, it's so institutional. Being able to challenge these narratives is incredibly difficult. I've written a book that tries to do something. I try to open up Islam um, and open up the ways in which we can understand Islam. But I also try to use the book as an opportunity for us to think about uh, why when those questions are answered, for example, if we feel or if we worry that Islam is violent, why when that question is answered and we understand that Islam is no more violent than any other religion, why do we still have a a particular fear or a discontent towards uh, Islam and, and what that might be about? I think that we do have questions to ask ourselves about what lies behind our fear of Islam. Um, and our fear of Muslim communities. I think often those are reflections of anxieties uh, that are incredibly um, 
vivid in Western society at the moment. Um, and, and, and also not just about our own anxieties, but, but plain old good old fashioned racism. And I think that we should acknowledge that as well, that often questions about Islam are not really about Islam. They're about other stuff. Sheikh Al-Qadri, can I bring us closer to home? Um, because we're, we're talking about Islamophobia. But what level of experience do you have it, of it here in Ireland? And, and can I add to the idea that in some cases people are nervous or anxious or even afraid to engage with you and the topic? Uh, when it comes to Islamophobia uh, or it comes to, uh, you know, anti-Semitism or a phobia of any of the other, it's it's a common uh, phenomenon, and I have always said that no community immune is immune to uh, racism. No immu- no community is immune to uh, this idea that you know we must have a, a conflict between us uh, and the other. Uh, but Ireland is a country where the experience of Muslims is one of the best in Europe, in my view, um, and that shows. Um, not only in in terms of how the media portrays Muslims um, in Ireland, but also in the way we are able to uh, celebrate our identity, being Irish and being Muslims. Uh, at the same time, we had uh, performed the Eid prayers twice in Croke Park, which, of course, everybody knows is a very iconic I- Irish uh, you know, venue. And I think that itself speaks volumes. Um, having said that, uh, there is... Uh, Islamophobia. Uh, there is, there are incidents of racism, but when we compare them to um, our neighbours in England, or we compare them with the other neighbours in Europe, then we'll see that in Ireland we have a very, very positive experience. Have you any idea why that is? I mean, could it be anything to do with our own Irish history of being othered at one time or other? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. I mean, I've always said that the reason why we as Muslims in Ireland have such a great experience is because the Irish people have been on the receiving end. They know how it is to be, uh, you know, treated differently. They know how it is to be uh, painted with the same brush. To Steve Khan, in your book, The Muslim Problem, Why We're Wrong About Islam and Why It Matters, um, you, you also highlight an, an interesting idea that a country like Pakistan, which would have a very strong Muslim influence, can also appear to be quite liberal on some issues. Absolutely. Um, I think that Pakistan has perhaps the most uh, progressive attitude and uh, set of legal policies when it comes to trans people. Um, I mean, coming from Britain, where the, where the conversation on trans people is incredibly embittered, is incredibly negative, there is so much, uh, let's say, verbal violence that takes place, we actually have the ability for trans people to self-identify their gender on all their identity documents, um, which, which is, you know, Pakistan is one of the very, very few countries in the world that, that enables that. And that's be also because of our history of understanding sexual and gender diversity with much more complexity than I think um, the West has, has allowed for. So that's, that's a huge win um, in a place like Pakistan, where it's not just that, but the, the government has instituted all sorts of laws to address and tackle the discrimination of trans people in the country. So that's incredibly exciting. Tasif, I'm thinking too about the experience and, and you, you heard how uh, Sheikh Al-Qadri explained what it's like to be Muslim in Ireland. Um, what's your, your observation of that from your position? Um, it, was, it was extremely interesting to hear because 
growing up in Britain and beginning to have conversations about what it means to be Muslim in British society, I've often heard too many times that Britain is a better place than anywhere else in Europe to be Muslim. And that might be true, but the experience of being Muslim here still involves a great deal of hostility, a great deal of doubt and suspicion. You know, we we live in a time when, as Baroness Aida Whitey says, Islamophobia has passed the dinner table test. And it is incredibly easy for people to use Muslims as scapegoats or to use Muslims to gain political capital uh, in various arenas. I think um, we live in a time where anti-Muslim stories are on newspapers all the time. So I think that the cumulative effect of that, whilst we are free in many ways, freer than perhaps if I was to live in in another part of the world, there is also a palpable climate of hostility towards Muslims. And that's incredibly demoralizing to uh, be living under when you also just want to feel as free as everybody else and feel like you have the same uh, agency and the same level of empowerment. Professor Siddiqui, do you have that same experience? If I'm honest, no. I haven't had that experience. Um, and maybe, you know, I have faced racism or or any other kind of prejudice without realising it. Um, but I also recognise that Tosif is growing up in a very different climate than the climate I grew up in. Um, I would still, however, say that if you're going to make a country your home, if you're going to call it home, you're going to live there, you're going to raise a family there, then you have to stay engaged. Um, it doesn't matter really to what extent you may feel that there is hostility. It matters, of course, in the sense that you're feeling that, and I'm not denying that. But what I'm trying to say is that at the end of the day, if this is going to be your home, then you have a moral duty to stay engaged, to to raise awareness of the very issues that you feel you're a victim. Or, not because you have to answer for a religion or a group, but simply because we don't improve, we don't progress as a society if we don't have these kinds of conversations. Um, and I think that really that's where we need to be, all of us, because this is home. You know, all of us live in the UK. There is no other home. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. My thanks to my guests, Professor Mona Siddiqui in Glasgow and Sheikh Dr. Umar Al-Khadri here in Dublin. And from Manchester to Sif Khan, author of The Muslim Problem, Why We're Wrong About Islam and Why It Matters. On sound this evening was Pather Carney, our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland. From our producer Sheila O'Callaghan and me, Michael Cummins, till next week, good night. <laughs>